Thornton and Lucy Blackburn were a revolutionary change-making couple who put love at the forefront of everything that they did. They deeply cared for each other and their respective communities. So why are they excluded from conversations about Black Canadian history, especially the Underground Railroad? Hi, hello, what is up and welcome or welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard, the podcast where we discuss true crime and Black Canadian history from a critical decolonial perspective, but above all else, without all the unnecessary propaganda, this is Black History Month edition, okay? I'm really excited for today's episode, so let's get into it. Thornton was born in 1812 in Maysville, Kentucky, United States of America. Maysville is on the Ohio River, which divided the slave-ridden South from the free North prior to the Civil War, and obviously prior to enslavement being abolished. So Thornton, he was born into slavery, unfortunately, and at three years old, he was stolen from his family and further enslaved away from them. He was literally given as a present to the son of the local postmaster. When I was doing research on this, I was like, what is a postmaster? Like, this sounds like some sort of like devious role that a person would play during enslavement. And it's literally just the person who manages the post office. Oh, Lord. Like, I know I'm pretty smart, but I felt really stupid when I found that out. But anyways at 14 years old he was sold once again but this time it was down the river so he was even further separated from his family he was purchased by dr gideon brown and this is when he was forcibly relocated to hardensburg in central kentucky dr gideon which maybe this is karma for buying slaves but he died three years after he purchased thornton i'm supposed to feel sorry for that bitch. i don't and so thornton was relocated once again but this time to louisville kentucky This next part of his life would be especially tumultuous because even though Dr. Gideon died, he was still owned by the Brown family. And so they sent him away to be hired help for someone else to make the money, which I didn't understand why, but that's what they did. And so he worked for a dry goods company as a porter. And I say worked, but it's it's not really work because he's not being paid because he's enslaved. But while he was playing this role, he was supervised by Gideon's brother-in-law, Judge John Pope Oldham. So this man was a judge and he had lots of enslaved folks in his custody and custody, kind of like police. Oh! Anyways, Thornton was just another one of them. Thornton actually lived in the slave quarters right behind the judge's downtown mansion. So they were able to keep an eye on all of the enslaved folks, make sure they didn't run away but also remind Thornton specifically that even though he was out of the Browns' house, he was still enslaved. He was not fully free, not even close to being free. And all of the money that Thornton made was sent back home to support the Brown family. While in Louisville, Thornton met and fell in love for the first and the last time with a woman who was known as Ruthie. Not very much is known about her life prior to meeting Thornton, but it is said that she was a Creole woman from the West Indies born in approximately 1803. She was enslaved by the same man who was supervising Thornton's enslavement, and she was said to be an extremely beautiful woman. Like, everybody wanted her, okay? She was top tier. She worked as a nursemaid to the white merchant family, so basically just like an olden day nanny. She just did everything the ladies would tell her to do inside. Now, Ruthie, I just wanna address this real quick before we move on. Ruthie was 28 and Thornton was 19. Wait a damn minute. (laughs) Wait a damn minute. But I want to note, these ages are approximate. It's not known for sure. But also, even if this was the age gap, it's a very different time period. So we're not going to judge them for their ages, okay? 
They fell in love during a very chaotic time frame where the most basic decisions were out of their control. So to be able to fall in love and imagine a better future together, to me is a pure act of radical resistance. And we're not judging them on the age gap, okay? That's on period! So because our homegirl Ruthie was so beautiful, the enslavers actually traded her to a man who was known to sell enslaved women at auctions in the deep south at things that were called the fancy girl market. My gag reflex went off. They knew that she would sell for a high price and she was worth more to them there than working in their home. The fancy girl market was basically just this slave trader event, which was typically held in New Orleans or Mississippi. This market had rich southern men and brothel owners who went to these markets specifically to seek out personal sex slaves or women to sexually traffic amongst their peers. Now, Ruthie and Thornton, they were deeply in love. They didn't want to be split up and neither of them wanted Ruthie to be sold into any form of sex slavery. So they were trying to come up with a plan to get them the heck out of there. They figured something out and they executed their plan flawlessly. Okay, we ride. We ride for the Blackburns. Carolyn Smards said the Blackburns' path to liberty had been neither smooth nor straight, but every American slave who found refuge in Canada before the Civil War had reason to be thankful to both Thornton and Ruthie Blackburn. On July 3rd, they made their escape via steamboat, okay? So they dressed up in some really nice fancy attire. They got fake papers, which stated that they were free African-Americans so that they'd be able to leave the country. They headed north on a steamboat named Versailles to Cincinnati, Ohio. After they got to Cincinnati, they boarded a stagecoach, which was headed for Michigan. Now, this whole process was extremely risky, okay? It could have easily ended with them being caught, them being re-enslaved, jailed, or even subjected to death. But they were willing to risk it all for love. So they actually got to Michigan successfully and they were able to settle down and build a beautiful, new, and free life for themselves. They were welcomed with open arms by the freed black community in Michigan, and they quickly became well-loved, well-respected, and a vital part of Detroit's black close-knit community. They really were like family to them. So it looked like they would finally have the love-filled free life that they always desired and ultimately deserved until a few short years later, some fool would come and mess it all up for them. Okay, so... In June of 1833, an annoying snitch from Kentucky rolled through town, recognized Thornton, and ran right back to the Brown family enslavers to tell them. Like, sir, you could have just minded your business, kept your mouth shut. Nobody asked you to do all that. He's really terrible. How did that benefit you? What did you gain from this? So the Brown family then sent an attorney to Detroit to recover their quote-unquote property. <laughs> Mm, you see that? I almost threw up. The attorney tried Ruthie and Thornton under U.S. federal law as fugitive slaves. The courtroom was packed with black Detroiters who had built up solid relationships with the couple. They loved them dearly. They had truly become a part of the community. Like I said, they were like family and nobody wanted anything to happen to them. So they were there showing their support. Unfortunately, that community support did not change the verdict and it came back against the couple. The Blackburns were sentenced to lifelong bondage. They were to be enslaved for the rest of their lives, and any children that they had were also to be enslaved for life. That is, if they were going to stay together. The community was hot, okay? They were heated. They were not going to let this happen. So they told everybody that if they went through with this plan, they were going to riot. 
they were going to burn the town down if no one stopped their beloved Blackburns from being sent back to enslavement after being free for the past two years. Despite community protest, Thornton and Ruthie were jailed and a steamboat was actually on the way to bring them back to the brutal punishment and permanent separation from one another as they were about to be sent back to the south. The community, I rock with them heavy, okay? I rock with them so heavy. They did not give up when the verdict was returned and news spread about the boat that was coming to pick them up. So they all got together and they made a plan. They're like, we're not going to let this happen, okay? This story actually, it warms my heart a lot. This piece of history I think is so vital. It's so important. But above all else, it makes me a little bit emotional because it shows the deep love that Black people have for one another I'm super obsessed with this show of love, support, solidarity, and ultimately community. Like they really showed what it meant to be a part of the community and to be just as important as everybody else, regardless of what you've done in your past. So on June 16th, 1833, two women visited Ruthie in her cell, her jail cell, which where she was being held to pray with her. They told the guards that they just had to pray with her, spend this time with her to make sure that she had a safe departure and safe travels back into enslavement. But... One of the women switched clothes with Ruthie, okay, took Ruthie's place in jail, and while no one was looking, they quickly swept our girl Ruthie over to the Canadian side of the border. Now, Thornton's escape happened the following day on June 17th. He was brought down in chains to the door of the jailhouse because the steamboat was waiting for him. Like, they were just gonna leave. Like, we don't have Ruthie, but we'll find her at some point. Let's get him out of here before more stuff happens. But... More than 200 black men and women marched up the street and they were armed, okay? And they snatched him from the jailer. Like, you're not gonna take our man, not today. Not today, Satan. Not today, neck. Not today, ankles. So then Thornton and seven of his community members fled over the Detroit River to Sandwich, Upper Canada, which is now a part of Windsor, Ontario. Their escape with other forms of radical protest that happened after their sentencing was actually known as the Blackburn Riots of 1833. All to save two lovers from separation, a life in bondage, and forcing the next generation to be in bondage as well, or potentially death. So after Thornton and his group arrived, and after they figured out where Ruthie arrived as well, they were found, they were arrested, okay, on the Canadian side. The mayor of Detroit the leader of the snakes, as I'll refer to him, accused the arrested individuals of inciting civil unrest and the attempted murder of the Wayne County Sheriff, which they had nothing to do with, okay? If they had just let our beloved Blackburn lovebirds go, then none of this would have happened. But also, this is very similar to the more recent protests and charges laid upon folks who participate in protests in both Canada and America, despite protesting something that's highly illegal and highly unethical, but all right. So Sir John Colburn, who was Upper Canada's lieutenant governor, he didn't really rock with slavery like that. Like he was, he was like, I don't, I don't really think they did anything wrong, you know, like, but that's just me. So when Michigan's governor demanded that the Blackburns be extradited, Colburn simply just didn't answer. He was like, I'm just, I don't know what to say. So I'm just not going to say anything. He told Attorney General Robert Simpson Jameson to find legal grounds for protecting them. Basically find a loophole so that we could keep them here. And boy, did Rob do just that, okay? The crimes they were charged with in America, they were not crimes in Canada. Enslavement was not a punishment for any crime that was carried out in British colonial Canada. So if they were going to be sent back to America, Mr. John told the Americans that they wouldn't be sent back to a jurisdiction where they faced a harsher sentence than if they committed a crime, an equivalent crime in Canada. But again, 
the crimes that they were charged with in America were not crimes in Canada. So I think he just said this to appease them, basically. And this specific part is actually still a part of Canadian extradition law to this day. And the Blackburn lovebirds set precedent for simply just existing, which I love. Carolyn Smards says that the decision that the Blackburns made and the adventures they shared on the difficult road north helped make a safe home for runaway slaves at the end of the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad occupies a very special place in North American history, but most of the stories that we hear or learn about are through the lens of white authors who paint themselves and their white ancestors as saviors, and that's just simply not the case, okay? Surviving enslaved narratives, however, show us that most Black folks who traveled through the Underground Railroad, they saved themselves without help, or they were granted help by other Black folks. Freed Black folks who were helping enslaved Black folks get free were putting much more at risk, and yet their contributions go largely unnoticed, underappreciated, and not recognized for the sole purpose of upholding white folks as saviors. Trash! Collective resistance, like what happened with the Blackburns and like what happened with the Underground Railroad, was extremely rare. When the beatings, the hunger, the destruction of family by sale and sexual interference was too much to bear, these black folks made the most anti-slavery statement possible, short of death, and they ran away. They deprived their enslavers of their productivity, their market value, but also robbed them of the children of them and their generations who would come after that with the sole purpose of making the enslaver money. So they robbed those people blind, okay? The slaves stole themselves. And by doing so, they exposed the American myth that black folks were not fit for freedom, that they were too stupid, too lazy to care for themselves or others, if not under white rule, and above all else, the myth that they were happy in their chains. No one was happy to be enslaved, let's be so for real. Most folks actually would end up running away because they were going to be separated from their families and they just couldn't bear to let that happen. So love was behind every decision. Love for self, love for their families. The odds against the Blackburns to make a successful escape, it was stacked against them, okay? But if they were going to be separated, they were not going to go down without a fight. They were deeply in love and nothing was going to stop them. And I love them for that. As soon as Ruthie got to Canada, she changed her name to Lucy as a way to celebrate her newfound freedom and also claim her identity back. Because that's a name that she was given by her enslavers. So she didn't really want to walk around with that, which totally understandable. But that's where Lucy came from. So after living in Amherstburg for about a year, the Blackburn lovebirds made their way to build their new lives in Toronto in 1834. Once in Toronto, Thornton actually met and reconnected with his brother Alfred, who had fled Kentucky five years before. What a nice, beautiful, and wholesome reunion, okay? The whole family's up here. Like, what are the chances? So the couple actually purchased a lot of land, and they built a cute little house on South Park Street, which is now known as Eastern Avenue, just north of what's known as the Distillery District. Shortly after their move, Thornton got a job as a waiter in Osgood Hall. While he was working there, he learned about a new form of transportation that was taking the scene by storm called a hackney cab. A hackney cab was basically a carrier that seated four and it would be drawn by a single horse. In 1837, the couple hired Paul Bishop to build them their own hackney cab, and they named it The City. Ooh, this is nice! This audience is you right here? This allowed them to create Toronto's first ever taxi company. 
The city was painted yellow and red, and their cab stand was on Church Street. According to Carolyn Smards, memories of the Blackburns cab are echoed in the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission's red and yellow logo colors. Thornton and his brother regularly thought about their mother, Sibby, who they knew was still enslaved in Kentucky. So they devised a plan, okay? They went off on a mission, y'all. Instead of taking the Underground Railroad to safety, they went back into the belly of the beast to find and save their mother. What the This was extremely risky, like more risky than fleeing the Underground Railroad, and it could have ended up with both of them being re-enslaved or even dead. But again, love motivated them to go for it anyways. This to me also highlights the power of community because there's no way they would have been able to find her and get her out safely without the help of their fellow black folks. This aspect of their story also hit me right in the heart because Thornton had been separated from his family since he was three years old, yet he was willing to risk it all to save his mom who he had not seen and he probably didn't remember very much of. So they were able to successfully find her, they saved her, and they traveled back through the Underground Railroad to bring her back to Toronto with them. So their cab business continued to thrive and they made a lot of money, okay? They did really well for themselves. And the more they succeeded, the more they gave back to their community and the more support they were able to give to the same Underground Railroad, which freed them and unified them with their family. I know that's right. They actually built six homes in St. John's Ward and rented the homes at very, very, very low rates to those who had recently been freed from enslavement and had traveled through the Underground Railroad, okay? They rented it to them at $10 a year. Lucy also made a point of donating money towards building the community's church, which acted as a spiritual and a social hub. Now, the couple by nature was, they were obviously abolitionists, okay? And they actually went on to be participants of the Convention of the Colored Free Man, which was held at St. Lawrence Hall in September of 1851, and of course, Lucy was there. Wherever Thornton was, Lucy was. But everybody gathered to discuss what the best response would be to the Fugitive Slaved Act, which was passed the year before in 1850 by the American government. This act basically just made it legal for any black person to be re-enslaved, even if they were living a freed life, or it allowed freed people to legally be sold into enslavement. Basically what happened in 12 Years a Slave. This convention was monumental, nothing like it had been done prior to this point, and so for Thornton and Lucy to both be participants is a huge deal, especially because they had literally stolen themselves not once, but twice. Thornton went on to be elected the vice president of the Canadian Mill and Merchant Association, which was funded by black business folks. He was actually responsible for overseeing a sawmill, a flour mill, and a general store be built to provide jobs at Buxton, which was a community for freed folks near Chatham. After the Civil War, the pair retired and they were able to live off of their investments for the rest of their lives and continue to support and give back to their community as well. Thornton unfortunately died in 1890 and he left Lucy $18,000, which was so much money. And on top of this money, she also had their six homes, okay? So Lucy actually sold a couple of the properties and moved on to a home in Bleecker Street. So Lucy would die just a short time later in 1895, but today they are laid to rest in the Toronto Necropoly. They are buried alongside Zibby Thornton's mom, Alfred Thornton's brother, and family friend Anne Maria Jackson and her son, Richard, who they helped quite a lot and they were really close with. In 1985, 
So a hundred years after Lucy had died and over a hundred years after Thornton had died, an archeological dig was led by Carolyn Smards in downtown Toronto, which allowed for the remains of the Blackburns home to be located. Beneath the Saxville Street School were traces of a house, a shed, and a cellar. Municipal records show that the owner was Thornton Blackburn Cabman Colored. This was the first ever dig to happen on an underground railroad site in Canadian history. 1985. That's crazy. The pair had no children. They did not ever learn how to read or write. So the fact that they were able to run successful businesses and help out so many people is just mind-blowing to me. But there are unfortunately no pictures of them. So we have no idea what they would look like. Carolyn Smards Frost said, These two young people, in search of freedom, changed history in both the United States and Canada. Now it is time for me to give my thoughts, my opinions, my feelings on what we just discussed. And I gotta say, I really loved learning about the Blackburns, okay? I thought that their story was so endearing it was such a testament of what love for self and love for community is all about okay i really loved the way that they the, as soon as they could they were able to help others that was one of their first priorities they're like if we're making it then everybody's making it okay to rent people a home for only ten dollars a year like you're not making any money off of that right so all of the money that they were making was from their cab i gotta say i had no idea that the first cab company in toronto possibly in all of canada was owned by a black couple. That's crazy to me. Thornton saw Lucy as his equivalent. It wasn't like, okay, yeah, he's the man, because it was very patriarchal. I mean, it still is to this day, but he's the man, so he makes all the calls. They did everything together. Everything. I think it's crazy that we did not really know anything about them prior to 1985, prior to the dig led by Carolyn. And if that dig never happened, then this very important piece of history would be lost and buried. I also think that this, this piece of history highlights how the underground railroad is not what we have all been taught it was where it's like yes white folks they came together and they saved all these black people black folks saved themselves time and time again they do it every single time so i don't think that that should be downplayed of course there were some white people who probably helped along the way but that's so insignificant to the amount of black people who got together and did the damn thing and it was all rooted out of love it was knowing that this was not right Black people, my black people deserve to be free and I love them like I love me. So I'm gonna make sure that this happens at any cost. <laughs> I loved the fact that Thornton went back with his brother to save his mother. So she got to live her final days in freedom after what I can only imagine to be such a treacherous life, being enslaved as a black woman in the South. She deserved that little piece of, of safety, really. I love that their whole life was revolved around obviously loving one another and loving their family, but more so like, what can we do to give back to our community? How can we support others in the way that we were supported when we first made it out of enslavement and the way that we were supported once we got here? The love that the Detroit community had for them unmatched. I, I loved the little, the little deviance that went on to get them out of there and get them free. I really wanted to find out what happened to those people who helped get them free what their punishment was, if they were seriously and severely punished, in what way, what that kind of looked like. But more so, I just wanted to know how mad the Americans were when they realized that the Canadians weren't going to send them back. <laughs> and I want to acknowledge that, yeah, the Canadians refused to send them back, but it's not like Canada was innocent and like the savior. I do think that 
if it had been somebody else in power, they probably would have sent them back, right? So yeah, that helped a lot in them starting their freed life, but I want to make sure Black people get all the praise that they deserve in this situation. So I rock heavy with the Blackburns. I rock heavy for doing things rooted in love, love for self, love for community, and love for your partner. So I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you really enjoyed learning about this little piece of history with me. And you now love the Blackburns as much as I love the Blackburns, okay? And I'll see you tomorrow.